Hello there. Welcome everyone to another episode of Phil and Michelle's happy hour. We don't have drinks. Well, not alcohol, but I think all of us have water or coffee. I'm on my coffee this coffee. morning. We are recording this episode a couple days after Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida. We are joined by Mark Davis, who is the co-CEO of Signal Restoration Services. Very excited to have him here today. Signal is celebrating a big anniversary this year. Um, I was able to be at a party in Detroit celebrating because they have headquarters and stuff here. And uh, we're going to talk about Signal's history and Mark's background in the industry. He's been in the industry for a while has a great story and legacy that he's built over time. And I know Phil and Mark know each other very well. So I'm just going to kind of be over here in the wings watching and participating on the side. So Phil, I'm going to toss it to you and to get this going and toss it over to Mark. Okay, fantastic. Good morning, Mark. Uh, so so one of the things, I, I'm going to go back, way back, um, probably not the beginning of Signal, but the back of our, the beginning of our relationship. I met you back in, I think it was 1996 in uh, Denver, and you had just uh, just purchased a company and just getting rolling in Colorado. Uh, when you entered the industry back at that time, uh, you came in with some different thoughts, you different thoughts on how the business was being run. And people looked at it a little bit weird and they were just thinking, you know, with these kids, they're going to get their, they're going to get their come up and they're going to learn a few things. And then, and then all of a sudden, they're going to figure it out at that point. And so they'll learn. And so I just found that really amusing. And so let's start right there. Let's go back to, to 1996 in our Wayback Machine and tell us a little bit about your thoughts when you came into the industry, what you saw, and some of the things you did with a little unconventional and challenged by others, but you you had a vision, you knew it was going to work. So tell us, take us back to there. Well, thank you, Phil. And thank you, Michelle. Uh, and very happy to be here. Uh, so going back 26 years ago to 1996, when Jeff Johnson and I bought Rocky Mount Catastrophe, uh, I was 27, Jeff was 28. We were best friends. We uh, had worked for our college fraternity. That's where we learned organizational development and leadership uh, and really how to sell and, and I guess start businesses because uh, we started lots of chapters from scratch. We didn't know that was going to translate so well into business. But when we decided to we didn't have money. We borrowed all the money, but we, <laughs> we didn't know about the industry either. We hired a broker and he said, hey, I have this company called Rocky Mount Catastrophe. And we liked the name and we're like, OK, let's look at it. And then we realized that, wait a minute, the receivables come from insurance companies. You're serving others. Uh, there's recurring business. And, you know, anyway, so we decided to do it. We had nothing to lose. Neither one of us were married. We borrowed all the money. <laughs> and when we then, you know. When we met you, right when we had, you know, the reason we were able to meet you, which was great, the company we bought was a member of DKI. That was probably the single most important uh, factor in opening up our eyes to the industry that we had just entered, but to what the possibilities were. Because three days after the closing, we go to Puerto Rico. I meet your dad, Phil Sr., at the El San Juan, and, it's, and we're meeting uh, DKI members from Canada and the U.S., and all of a sudden, it's like, wow. This industry is incredible. And we bought the company from Jeff and Angela Steemack, and they had started from scratch and they had grown to 3.6 million in revenue. And that's what the size of the company was when we bought it was 3.6 million. And so we had some recurring revenue and the company had never really done work out of state, but they'd hired Stacy Mazur and Stacy Mazur was the national sales manager. And he, he, they'd hired him from Gerloff out of uh, San Antonio. And so here's Jeff and I in Puerto Rico meeting wonderful independent owners as members of DKI. And we just, we came back to Denver and said, wow, this industry is incredible. And uh, the sky's the limit. 
uh, let's see what we can do with this. We didn't know what we didn't know. That was really, I think, one of the main factors is, uh, and we certainly did not know about operations. And I think what's important is what you bring up is already Denver was slated to host the DKI convention the very next year. And so that was great. That wasn't because of Mark and Jeff. It was just already on the schedule of DKI. The convention was going to be in Denver. And between the first year, the first day that we bought the company and that one year later, we'd grown the company from 3.6 million to 11.1 million in our first year. And so now we were asked to give a presentation to the DKI membership. How did you do that? So Jeff and I gave a presentation to the membership that we were building a sales organization. And that in essence, how we did it was we built a sales organization that we saw such fragmentation in the industry that we thought that if we literally focused on sales and on the top of the funnel and, and not just the residential sales, we, we, we didn't know. So we thought, well, we, we should go after bigger jobs. So that means who has bigger jobs? Well, bigger brokers like Aon, <laughs> Marsh, Willis, at the time, Van Gilder Insurance in Denver. And so Assurex brokers. So we thought, well, let's just go after brokers. And wait a minute, there's different levels of adjusters. There's the field adjuster, an adjuster, desk adjuster, or desk adjuster, field adjuster, and then general adjuster, and then executive general adjuster. And when it was explained to us by Stacy Missouri that the executive general adjuster could write a check for a million dollars without approval, <laughs> that's what Jeff and I were like, well, okay, well, then why don't we market the executive general adjuster? I mean, it was almost like, again, we didn't know what we didn't know. So in that right. second year, we did 25 million. And where we really got to know each other, Phil, and, and your amazing family, was as we became members of DKI and we really enjoyed it, uh, there was an opportunity for expansion for us to buy other DKI members. Mm -hmm. And the second acquisition we made was your dad's business, uh, your family business that you and your dad owned and your brother, Dave. And so Spectra Systems out of Springfield, Oregon, was our second acquisition, thanks to DKI. And then our third one was uh, a company called Smith Environmental out of, out of Denver that had had a chapter seven, and but they had in-plant service contracts with Lockheed Martin. And, and all of a sudden we had a chance to hire eight people in one day. And then we went to a PLRB and we're like, wait a minute, it's going to take us too long to get to all this commercial work. And look, <laughs> at, look, at, this, look at this company, Munters. They're, Munters is doing everybody else's drying. How do we, well, what we should do is we, they're, they're a huge Swedish company. They've got all this equipment. Why don't we just hire Teresa Williams, their national sales manager? Well, that was the goal. And Teresa was literally, and probably still is the number one, like amazing, dynamic uh, uh, performer, human being, uh, uh, just just saleswoman and dynamo individual. So we we courted Teresa and tried to get her to come work for us, and she actually said yes. But when she said yes, she said, "But you, I'll only, I'll only uh, come work for you if you hire these seven people." That included her boss, the managing director of Munters, and Mitchell Parks, and Eddie Pacluda, and Robert Peets, and. Randy Lambert. Anyway, we go down this list. And we're like, how are we going to afford that? All these people make more than we're paying ourselves. We can't do that. Yeah. But we looked at it and said, but we had literally just cut a deal with Agreco where Agreco agreed to rent <laughs> only equipment to us. And this is very interesting about the history and the evolution of our success, honestly, at Rocky Mountain Catastrophe and then eventually becoming Belfort, is Agreco was and is the largest temporary utility in the world. Their primary business is oil and gas. Their headquartered, their U.S. headquarters is in New Iberia, Louisiana. And they were having a receivables problem of getting restoration companies to pay their bill. And they weren't paying them until they got paid. And we met them in North Dakota when we loaded up trucks when the Red River flooded in 97. And we went to go help save Grand Forks, North Dakota. And we ended up using 
Agreco Equipment, and it was a great relationship. And I ended up becoming friends with the president of Agreco. I flew down to New Iberia, Louisiana, and he said, Mark, you're a member of DKI. I like you guys. I'll cut a deal with you. One year exclusive. They, Agreco, gave us a one year exclusivity where even every DKI member or every other restoration company in the country, in order to rent an Agreco piece of equipment, had to go through us. Unfortunately, DKI didn't like that too much, yeah. but I, we offered them a discount. And as a result, <laughs> the, as a result, literally, uh, God bless him and Frank Heaton. God bless him. I'm, you know, great guy. But the DKI board kicked us out of DKI. And we weren't even on the board, but I presented to the board this great opportunity where they were now going to have priority with Greco equipment. They just had to go through us and we were going to offer them a discount. They couldn't believe that I sold that account, that that exclusive deal with a Greco as Rocky Mountain Cat instead of as DKI. But DKI was just at a consortium of independent contractors. And I right. said, guys, I'm going to yep. offer you a better deal than anybody else will have. But Jeff and I are running our business here. Yeah. And so they didn't like that. But what happened was, and this is a really important part of the story, how Belfort chose us when they came to the U.S. as their platform. We'd successfully recruited uh, the entire management, uh, top management team of Munters, North America, between sales, executive leadership, and operations management and logistics. We'd also secured an exclusive arrangement with Agreco. So now completely undercapitalized, bootstrapping Rocky Mountain Cat, can barely make payroll every other Thursday. Okay, hired a PEO just because we'd get a couple extra days of float on the payroll. That's That was us. <laughs> but we were growing like crazy. And now when Belfour was going to come to the U.S. and Canada, and they were looking for the platform company to be their launch pad, they met with BMS Cat, they met with Intercon, they met with several other companies. And I honestly believe, even though they liked Jeff and they liked me, I can honestly tell you, I think it was the, form, the company we'd formed with Teresa Williams called Recovery Solutions, uh, that really was the most attractive thing to them because that was, wow, that was used to be Munters and they actually hired all those people. And now they're, they've, they've got this company out in Oregon, which we renamed Pacific Catastrophe and they have Rocky Mountain Catastrophe. Now they have Recovery Solutions. And we actually bought a company in New York City that just had the phone number. And MF Bank used to be a big restored company and they own a company called TRC, the restoration company. Well, they went bankrupt. But when they had an auction, Jeff and I bought TRC's phone number. Well, TRC had been selling. <laughs> TRC, we paid we paid seventy five thousand for that phone number, and that's all we paid for, and that's all we got. But the phone number had been selling that they'd been selling MSAs for fifteen years. Oh, geez. And two oh. weeks after, two weeks after, we bought the phone number for TRC. Our phone rang because we had the number forwarded, and we got a three hundred thousand dollar job at Middle Tennessee State. <laughs> How else could we have ever gotten a job at Middle right. Tennessee State except we bought the phone number for TRC? Anyway, all of those reasons combined, we now own an environmental company, okay, RMCAT Environmental. We had RMCAT in Denver, which we expanded, and we had four offices in Vail and Colorado Springs and uh, Fort Collins in Denver. And then we had Pacific Catastrophe out in Oregon, Recovery Solutions. And so when Belfort came to look at, at us, even though we were young and we were only three years in business, we're now talking. We did all this in three years. It's 1999. And the, the Germans that owned the Belfort brand and that started Belfort over in Switzerland in 1989, I became good friends with a founder. His name is George Schutte. I'm still great friends with George to this day. And George ultimately had the, the, the final say on, on who they were going to pick. And George Schutte uh, picked uh, Rocky Mountain Catastrophe Recovery nice. Solution and Pacific Catastrophe. <laughs> as the platform so in denver colorado a lot of people don't know this and and look jeff and i are proud of it but we've obviously moved on and done great things jeff is chairman of first on site 
and it's just an amazing job with that growth of interstate and then and then first on site and obviously me with signal and pure clean um and u.s roofing but but at that time obviously this was our baby and we we were very very excited about it and on 9 9 of 99 at 9 a.m so september 9th <laughs> of 99 at 9 a.m is when belfort was founded in north america mm. And, and that was because Jeff and I sold 80% of our collective companies to the Germans. And we formed Belfort USA Group Inc. in Denver, which, which today is the Belfort of today. So you'll hear lots of other people want to take credit for this or that or whatever. These are just the facts. And Phil, you were there for it. So you happen to know, yeah. uh, you happen to know that that's true. I'm not sugarcoating anything. And, and lots of other people have been successful around the Belfort brand and God bless them. But that is the story up till then. Yeah. And then what we did. Once we once we uh, had the platform, we were given a four hundred million dollar budget by the Germans to go in and and buy companies. And the first company we bought was Bridgeway Construction in Seattle. The second company was DRS, which was Tommy Stanley uh, down in uh, and Don Nye down in uh, Dallas. Uh, and then we were looking at other companies to buy. And Enricon was the biggest company. They were in the East Coast. They'd been purchased by Masco. The Fenton family had started them. Randy Fenton and Mark Fenton, their dad Sam had started it. Randy Fenton was the absolute visionary of, of consolidation in this Good industry. So, yeah. Amazing, amazing man. He was the visionary. He was my mentor. And it, they tried to buy us at, in 1997 yeah. at the one-year mark. And that's how I got to know him. And uh -huh. then in 1999, we founded Belfort. Then in 2001, I called Randy. And I'm like, Randy, I really think we should find a way to, to work together, which meant us buying them. And yep. we did. Then we bought they were, they were 35 offices at that time, right? So they were bigger than you. They were double. We had grown to 110 million through those other acquisitions, yep. uh, but they were 220 million. So they were okay. double our size. But if you also looked at the map, remember we were Oregon, uh, we were Oregon, Colorado, Texas, Texas, and they were Michigan, Florida, uh, Virginia. And we looked at the map and said, oh my goodness, there's almost no overlay overlap here. Yeah. So the synergies made sense. And that's part of the story. And for anybody who's doing acquisitions, I tell that now, and people ask me a lot of times about buying and selling and all that, because I've certainly done a little bit of it in my career. The, the, the numbers worked. All I can tell you is the return on investment was wildly successful for the Germans and, and for Jeff and I and all that. But what we didn't do, we didn't lift up the hood on culture. And uh -huh. I never have anything bad to say about any companies. All I can tell you is, is that when anyone's looking at either selling to someone yep. okay, or buying yep. another company, the numbers are the second most important thing maybe actually the third i would say the third most important thing the most important thing anyone should look at is culture what is that culture like and what would that culture be like and how would our culture fit into that culture yep. and so what i found myself doing was pulling off an amazing acquisition and jeff and i got to own you know 20 percent of Inricon the day we closed and mm -hmm. and uh without having to put any money in because we we negotiated a really great deal with the germans and Jeff and I found ourselves not happy with the acquisition, but it wasn't about the numbers. It was about the culture. So Jeff decided to leave and then I decided to leave. We went our separate ways, but we stayed friends. And uh, Jeff's been really, really successful. And uh, and I'm so proud of him. And uh, we're friends to this day. And I'm still on my journey. He's still on his journey. I'm still on my journey. And it's I always say the journey is the destination. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, I'm sorry for kind of that long answer, but I, it ties into a lot of uh, parts of the industry that I think... Um, that I think uh, are interesting. 
it yeah, shows how still- small the industry is. Like the number of names yeah. that you said, I think a lot of people listening will recognize at least some of those names. I'm newer yeah. to the industry, but I recognize quite a few. I'm curious because I've heard this from other CEOs and people in the M&A space. Did you have a gut feeling going into that transaction that you decided later on as you did more M&A and you moved about your career that you listened to your gut a little bit more as you went? That's it, Michelle. That's interesting. That's a very good question. And uh, I've now had years in retrospect, to be honest with myself about it, look myself and say it. Uh, because, you know, having been the co-founder of Belfour, it wasn't like I did that so that I could then make a bunch of money and leave. No, I was on the journey and I was having fun. Uh, but that last acquisition wasn't the right move for both Jeff and for me. It just wasn't. Uh, and I'm not being financially, it was very good financially. It wasn't the right move for us from a leadership standpoint, from a culture standpoint, Jeff and I had built something really special. And that changed when we bought something twice our size, you could talk about integration all day long, but when it's David and Goliath, it's really hard to change a culture when the company acquiring is much smaller. We had been, we'd literally been five years in business and that (laughs) company founded in 1948. So you look at 1948 uh, all the way to 1996. So anyway. When Jeff and I decided, you know, you can't beat City Hall, we're better off going off and doing this off on our own again. Jeff had left earlier. I gave it a little bit longer ago. But I got to tell you, with instead of my gut, my I didn't have a gut check. I was so laser focused on the map mm-hmm. and, the, and honestly, what we could do with distribution. And oh, my goodness, we're now going to be the dominant player. And I am a competitor. And so I was blinded completely blinded and that's why i say by what i say is or maybe just uh aloof my head was in the clouds i wasn't paying attention to what i think is the most important now I, as the seasoned uh more experienced guy who's made a lot of mistakes and i'm not saying buying <laughs> was a mistake i'm not saying buying them was a mistake the germans wouldn't say that either because the thing worked out great financially but i gotta tell you if that was jeff or i today i we wouldn't be buying a company with that culture that, that's all but but it wasn't a mistake financially but I didn't have any second guesses because I was laser focused. I had the blinders on because it was all about growth and, and numbers. Yep. And, and so one of the things, and, and, and just probably going to clarify and it only requires one say, I don't think it, you're stating that it was a bad culture. No. It was a misfit in culture. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. I wouldn't say anything, but a lot of great people there, but it was clearly, uh, uh, we were, just much more open with our with our culture of sharing information of you know what you were part of our culture phil you were part of the team and we bought a company that although it was successful and very successful it wasn't that it was a close you know it was just different so different fit and a fit that quite frankly had we done the diligence we would have seen it yep we would have seen it but we didn't ask the questions That is so true, though. I mean, culture fits doesn't mean, yes, it doesn't mean it's a bad culture or a bad company. Every culture is so different from company to company. So just because somebody's not a good fit doesn't mean it's not a good company or not a great fit for another buyer down the street. Just uh, so so a couple of clarifying. So you you just mentioned the times. So one of the things I'm just going to, I I think a lot of our lessons are learned not through our successes, but through our failures or struggles or challenges. And so I I just remember I was in your office. I worked there from uh, September of 97 until March of 98. And I remember payroll afternoons, Friday afternoon, Jeff Johnson running up and down the hallways. Who's got money coming in? Where's the money? Where do we got to get some? So it it was, you know, growth drives lots of other challenges around that. And so just the, the, the reality check is that you, you 
the, the sun wasn't always shining on you. You had challenges and problems throughout there. And I'll attest to that. But on the other side of you, looking to say, wow, those guys did a great job. They, you know, fantastic successes, whatever it is. So they came through the lessons learned through challenges. Um, I want to, I want to say really, just really quickly, there was a, there was a, a rumor that when you first bought the company, there was a case of champagne involved in something around a million dollar a month. Is that a true story? <laughs> Okay, we, we were tracking sales within our little warehouse in Arvada, which was great. We le- came with the acquisition, was a lease, we didn't own it, uh, in Arvada, Colorado, a suburb. And we were able to, in an industri- industrial space, you know, to kind of take the space next door. And we built a training room, but it was also a sales room, because remember, we were building a sales organization, and we had yep. whiteboards. We had whiteboards put on all the walls, and with magic marker, like the erasable magic marker, <laughs> we'd put down, you know, Dan Dansby, Mark Davis, Jeff Johnson, uh, Derek Hall, you know, all the people of sales, uh, Doug Novotny, you know, Phil Rosebrook. And we literally tracked sales and we had an eight o'clock sales meeting every Thursday. Yeah. And part of it was, this was about sales culture. It's what I spoke about at the DKI conference, sales culture, what's counted counts. Let's drive the numbers. Let's put things at the top of the, at the, of the funnel and see what falls down. And, uh, and so literally we had a goal. We bought a company to win 3.6 million. We had a goal, you know, that we wanted to get to, you know, a million a month. And when we got to the million a month, we did. We cracked out the champagne and then we said, okay, but now the next thing is, is a million in a week and then a million in a day. We did the same thing as we got to the point where we were actually growing. And it was interesting because when we did host the DKI meeting there, and I love him, Denny Jensen was a great mentor. I, I looked up to him when I joined DKI, I said, Jeff, we need to be like Denny Jensen in Salt Lake City, Utah. Denny was walking through our warehouse and he saw the numbers on the board and he's like, Mark, Mark. You put those numbers up there for this meeting. <laughs> I said, Denny, those numbers are real. Because, again, we were in the process. We'd already finished the second year at 11.1, but we had done $25 million in our second year. And so we were putting some serious numbers up on the board. And I'm like, Denny, those numbers are real. Like, we're aggressive and we're going after it. And so, um, but that that is a true story. And it's something we do. I still believe to this day to set those goals and those incremental yeah. goals and celebrate those successes with the team. Tell you, okay, those thank sales you. meetings were exciting. They were exciting. I was a part of those, and it was just fun. Every every uh, it was Tuesday morning at eight. Tuesday it was Wednesday. Thursday. We did Thursday Thursday morning at eight. Yep. Okay, that was fun. I love it. Not death by meetings. It's good when you can have right. fun meetings and get people engaged and part of the culture. Yes. That was the culture. Yep. But it was also about accountability, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Everyone's name was on the board, and we had we talked. Everyone had to go around and talk about their activity. But look, words are words. They had to post what the numbers were. And it was actually sales and collections because we were we didn't have any money. Let me tell you something. Every other Thursday, we didn't know if we were going to make payroll on Friday. And that was for three and a half years. Oh. And so uh, I we completely empathize. I don't want people to think, oh, those guys have been successful all along. OK, maybe on the top line. And yes, we made money. But when you're successful and you're growing, it eats working capital. And if you don't have a bank continue to just feed the working capital you'll, or can't, can't collect the money, you're in trouble. And uh, again, just with good fortune, our bank out of Aurora, Colorado was called Citywide Financial. They kept increasing our line of credit. And we we basically did receivables, aggressive receivables financing. And that doesn't work if you ever stop selling, but we never stopped selling. So that's how the model worked. Okay, I think we need to have you continue your story because we know what you left Belfort. So then what? Well, I fulfilled my non-compete and I quickly learned I was not as smart as maybe I thought I was. And uh, <laughs> a few of the businesses that I invested in, I didn't do well in. 
And I was counting the days. I called Belfort and asked them if I could buy my way out of my non-compete. Because huh. if you look at the timeline of when I sold, I sold in 2004. And right after I sold, Charlie, Rita, Wilma, <laughs> Katrina, and I'm on the sideline and I'm going, oh. And it wasn't even about the money at that point. I like yeah. being in the game. I yeah. love building teams and I love helping people and serving others. And they said no. And uh, so anyway, I fulfilled the non-compete. And then when I came back in, uh, you know, I, I because I'd been part of a large organization, obviously, of building Belfort, I wanted to come in with a, a, a re-entry into the industry with a larger presence. So I was asked to come in and take over for a, 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 what was it was a failing company called Instar. They had been successful in their roll-up. They had sold to Service Master. Uh, literally, Service Master paid $95 million dollars. Uh, in 2006, which was all post hurricane revenue from if you think about that. And yep. then literally a, a private equity firm, which I was friends with both of the founders of the PE firm from Birmingham, Michigan, they bought it for 21 million knowing that I could come in when my non-compete expired. So I came in when my non-compete expired. I took over a company that had just lost $9 million in the year before. Now I wasn't a turnaround guy. Uh, and we were very successful in the first year, but I honestly can't take, cannot take the credit. It was about timing, but we, we turned it around and made 7 million in my first year as, as a CEO. And the company had lost 9 million the year before, but I don't have a magic wand. It was timing. I'm not afraid to tell you that it was hurricane Ike and uh, the company had some good contracts in South Texas. Um, and so, you know, I engineered a turnaround. I recruit a bunch of uh, people from the industry. I learn. I meet some amazing talent at Instart, like amazing people uh, that are with me to this day. And um, but I just learned that private equity ownership at that time for me wasn't a good fit. Again, not that anything wrong with Black Eagle. I'm not here to say anything wrong about them. It was just uh, yep. I knew what 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 worked for me. And these guys were my friends. So this is not like some New York private equity firm. We were members of the same country club and went to the same church and we couldn't get along. So we parted ways. I agreed to a one-year non-compete, but the good news is about that one-year non-compete, it did not prohibit me from planning my re-entry. So I did not violate my non-compete. I never did. I signed two <laughs> non-competes and I honored them. And I guess that's just part of me. If I sign something and if I say something, that's what I'm going to do. And I did it in, in both those cases. Uh, but what I did do was plan the reentry and and what worked. I said, OK, what worked? What worked in my career was finding a platform like Rocky Mountain Catastrophe and building on that platform. And so I looked for one. I found one in, in Michigan called Signal. The company had been in business since 1972, husband and wife. They did about eight, nine million a year in revenue. They had no debt. They had no litigation. And they had a phenomenal reputation. And I'd met a gentleman named Frank Torrey along the way. Uh, it just in living in Michigan and yep. through philanthropy, Frank's a big philanthropist and he donates a lot of money to the, to the hospitals. And he works a lot with boys, hope girls, hope, and helping the kids, the underprivileged kids with college. And I was just attracted to Frank's, uh, everything, Frank's personality, Frank's, um, mm -hmm. his demeanor. He's an amazing human being. And he also had owned a landscaping company that he had sold to Brickman during the roll-up that was the best landscaping company in 16 States. And he didn't have a non-compete. And so I'd actually asked him to come on the board at, at Instar, which he had done. So we planned this. We decided to buy Signal together. We bought Signal in 2012, which was doing about $9 million in revenues. And literally, uh, Frank and I now own 50-50. We're 50-50 partners, no outside equity. And we, uh, again, back to timing, 
the first thing we did was we knew we were going to do large loss work. So I didn't have an opportunity to go after Teresa Williams. She's a, she's still at Belfort and she's got a non-compete. So what do we do? We looked around and said, we need operations people because we both know how to sell. Let's not even hire salespeople. We're going to go out and sell. So let's hire the best operations people we can. And we hired eight operations people, Alan Roney, uh, Brian Newell, Clint Roney, uh, the Garza brothers, all who are still with us today, 10 years later. So with those eight people, and none of them lived in Michigan, we then said, okay, Frank, let's get to selling. And then the phone rang. Is this Mark Davis? Yes. Are you still in the rest restoration business? Yes. Uh, this was right after Superstorm Sandy. Can you, how quickly can you get to 2600 Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn to pump out the basement at Coney Island Hospital? <laughs> well, we, we had a team already, Alan Roney and Clint Roney and uh, Brian. They were already in a caravan with some, uh, you know, on the Jersey Turnpike. And I called them up and they said, we're 28 minutes from there. I'm like, no way. I called back. I'm like, we could be there in an hour. That phone call to ask if Mark Davis was still in the business, is this your phone number? Can you pump out the basement at Coney Island Hospital? Turned into a $133 million job. Now, did I sell a $133 million job? No. <laughs> I did not. I sold a job to pump out the basement at a hospital in Brooklyn. But our operations team, once they got on site, became invaluable. There were four other hospitals owned by the city of New York damaged. And those facilities managers had a, had a call every morning at 730. And after two weeks, they asked me if I'd go over and look at Bellevue Hospital at 28th and 1st. But they already had a company there. But I went over there and looked, and they were literally pumping out the basement with garden hoses. I reported back, and they said, the job, the job is yours. That job ended up being 50. That, that job ended up being 52 million for us. But the reason it grew to 52 million again, the damage was there. But it was because once our operations team got ingrained in there and, and, and their teams saw what we could do from an operations standpoint. And so the irony of that, Phil, if you tie it back to my presentation to DKI in 1997 at the Denver meeting, Jeff and I presented a very controversial concept of building a sales organization and a lot of DKI members like those guys are never going to make it. They're focused only on sales. This is an operations driven business. And yet here I am full circle. When I bought Signal, I didn't hire any salespeople. I bought, I hired operations people yeah. and then we went and sold things and it was our operations that has grown the business. So I'm not, look, they're all important. Believe me, it's a hybrid. It's a balance. You can't have one without the other. Right. You cannot. You have to have them both. But it's interesting how that has evolved. And then so that 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 $133 million, which we did in 10 months, and we got paid every penny. And you, I was calling you along the way and telling you how we were doing it. Uh, we we were audited every week and and we we gave a quick pay discount. That's the only way we could finance a job that big. But then afterwards, Frank and I were like, OK, now we've proven ourselves. People still don't know who Signal is. Let's not be self-promoting. Let's just go and be the boutique company that 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 people want to use for for large loss. And let's be very selective and let's keep our overheads very low. To this date, we follow that same philosophy. But what we wanted to do was grow, but we didn't have the Germans and all their money. They gave us that four hundred million dollars for Antonio <laughs> did back in back in 1999. So Frank and I decided we were going to try to franchise. So we called up Wayne Wadika at CRDN. And Wayne is a very, very successful, uh, uh, I mean, he's unbelievable. Wayne is an amazing human being. And I met him in 2001 when I moved, uh, when I bought Enricon and I moved to Michigan. He was one of the first people I met. He had just started CRDN from his uh, 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 dry cleaning company called Huntington Cleaners there in Michigan. And he'd wanted 
in Rakan's business. And so then Randy introduced me to, to Wayne and Wayne and I became friends. And uh, then he's been wildly successful. So Frank and I sat down with him and said, how do we franchise Signal? And he was very polite. He knows me for a long time. And he said, Mark, you're, you, that'll take you too long. If you think you're going to start a franchise from scratch and compete with Surpro and Service Master and Rainbow and Stanley Steamer and Puriclean, and we're going down the list and we're like, okay, well then who of those could we potentially buy? And he said, well, none of them are for sale. Uh, and, and the, the Isingsons are never going to sell Surpro and service mm-hmm. masters publicly traded. And he's, we're going down the list and we're like, but what about that Puriclean? And so anyway, Puriclean was at the bottom of the list. Uh, hey, you know, I think most of us know that very few people even knew who they were. Uh, and, um, so we decided to give that a go. So Frank and I, uh, called up the owners, asked if they'd meet with us and came up with a plan. Next thing you know, we make an unsolicited offer to buy the company. We paid 21 times uh, earnings. And that might sound a little crazy to you. Why would you pay it 21 times? Uh, And why did we do that? Because the company wasn't making that much money, number one. So we're not talking about a huge number. It was making money. Okay. But it was, and it was losing money more. I mean, it was losing, was making less money every year, five years in a row. So it was going the wrong direction. They just lost the class action lawsuit. They lost a bunch of franchisees. But Frank and I were like, you know what? Uh, I, I said, Frank, I'm not a turnaround guy, but we're brand builders and we know the business and we work hard and let's give it a go. So we we uh, we bought the company. We met with our franchisees. Uh, almost every single one of them were in the system that came to convention or that came to the regional meetings. And we said, we're here to serve you. We're going to build a, a culture of servant leadership. We're going to invest heavily in training. We are, we are going to listen to you to what you think you need. And we're not going to take any profit at all out of the company for a minimum of two years. Uh, we actually went over five years before we took a penny of profit out. We kept reinvesting back in the training. And so I, all I can do is fast forward to you now. Two days ago on the 28th of September was the seven-year anniversary that Frank and I bought Puro Systems the, that, that owns the PuroClean brand. When we closed Seven years ago, we had just over 200 locations. Today, we have 410. Our average unit sales, we're very proud about this. Our average unit sales of the small franchises uh, was $400,000 uh, in 19 or in uh, 2015 when we bought the company. Today, our average unit sales is 950000 And our goal is obviously to get to over a million, and we'll be there within the next year or two. Or, and so that means we haven't just grown to 410 we've more than doubled the uh, as owners and they've done it on their own, but we provided the support. We went and land. I can't mention the national accounts because I think I'm under a confidentiality agreement there, but I can tell you this of the five largest residential insurance companies in the United States. We have three of those five uh, as clients that give us recurring business. And the company was Puro clean was sending zero revenue to our franchisees. When we bought it last year, we sent $58 million of direct assignment. Uh, and that number continues to grow. So, so one of the things I so just from a first uh, firsthand perspective, I got to sit in some meetings with the regional directors, and I got to see how you treated the regional directors and your conversations about the franchisees. And so, from a firsthand perspective, the conversation was always, "I want them to be successful." There was times in which you said, "I'm willing to give up something for a little while, 
but let's invest back in those people so they're successful because that's the most important part of it. And so I did, you know, I, I find a lot of franchises are really good at selling franchises and that's what they want to do. And what I was surprised at or what I, what I liked, I wasn't surprised. What I liked was that your focus was let's create successful franchises. And so um, I want to move uh, just a little bit because one of the things that uh, part of the, this conversation was about the uh, the fiftieth anniversary of Signal, and that's quite that's that's monumental. And so one of the things very specific I want to say you have a fifty year track record. And what was it that you saw in that company when you bought it that you saw longevity in an industry that was really dominated by burnout, high turnover, failure, um, all these you know restoration is not a place where you have fifty year companies, but you're there for fifty years and you're you're really investing for the long term. What was that you saw and then what are the elements of your business currently that are driving longevity okay thank you that's a great question and we'll go back to why jeff and i like the idea of rocky mount catastrophe at least in denver which was our market that we started we we didn't have to go into a meeting of any meeting when someone say who because <laughs> that company's been in business for 13 years and in in our philosophy was in entering the business again with a platform at least in michigan that company had been in business for 40 years. We weren't going to have to walk into an insurance adjuster's office, have someone say, here we are with Signal, and they'd say, who? And, and so that's another thing even about PureClean. Part of the benefit of buying a franchise, any franchise, not just a PureClean, is if it's an established franchise and you're in a market, people will have most likely heard of that brand before. And so that's not to mean you can't start a restoration company from scratch and be successful because you certainly can uh, with a name that you create with your own name or your last name or whatever. It happens uh, every week, every month. Uh, but for us, anyway, finding a platform company that, first of all, people wouldn't say who, but that means then that that platform company would also have to have a phenomenal reputation so that when they were going to link you to a company, it would have a positive thought to it. Mm -hmm. the owners of Signal, they always did everything right. They never fought. They didn't sue anybody. They, they had the, the most impeccable reputation. They operated with no debt. They were ultra conservative. And, and Frank and I looked at it and said, we're not going to have to apologize at any point in time for having the signal brand, you know, on our, on our shirts. Um, and so I think that was the main thing. What we really saw was we saw a platform where we weren't going to have to apologize, but that we could literally, the foundation was built, but we could add rocket fuel to the rocket. So they'd had the rocket a little bit, but we, we added much bigger engines and a bigger vision and a different strategy and lots of rocket fuel. Lots of so, rocket fuel. So a related issue, and this um, uh, just a, a question about employees. So uh, 1997, uh, was that the Christmas party? Um, it was, it was the, the Rocky Mountain National, uh, RM Cat Christmas party. And one of the things you said there was, we are so proud of the fact that we, I think you had about 125 employees at that time. You, let's say it was 105 or 125. There was a five in it and a hundred in it. And <laughs> you had said, we're so proud of the fact that we've grown to this number of employees. And in the last year, we only lost two employees. And so that's something that is so, first of all, that, that's remarkable just in and of itself. Uh, but if you look at today, uh, one of the biggest problems that people have in restoration, I hear it over and over and over and over again, is I can't find people. And so one of the things in scaling, growing a company, growing a franchise, whatever you're doing, what, what have you done to locate and find great people? And how do you retain them? Because you keep mentioning the names of people who have been with you since, uh, since 2000. 
since 1997, since 19. So what is it that you do to attract great people and to retain them? It's, it's honestly so simple because it's, it's not something we have to try to do. Uh, Jeff Johnson had the same philosophy when he was my partner and Frank Torrey does now. Frank and I've been together for 10 years doing this. We literally think about people and put people before ourselves. I know that sounds cliche, but we really do. And so at Rocky Mount Cat, Jeff and I, we couldn't afford those people from Munters, but we took our salaries down to $50,000 and said, we're going to focus on them and we're going to provide a 401k and we're going to contribute, even though we can't afford to, we can't afford not to. So it was literally about putting others first and, and literally listening and not just words. People can tell if you're just using words, oh, we care, we care. If you're not showing, you have to show that you care. Um, and the other thing is we were never operating, and I still don't to this day, from an ivory tower. Hmm. When there was a storm, we were right there in it. At that Christmas party, if you remember right, there was a water damage. I know this sounds crazy, but it was a freeze. And literally, Jeff and I got on the truck. We left the Christmas party, and we went and did water extraction ourselves. So, and so Frank and I are the same way. There isn't anybody that we wouldn't do their role and treat them and treat those people with respect and we don't always pay more, okay? We pay market or we'll pay above market when we can, okay? Because we have to run a, a for-profit business because we have to protect the future and the integrity of the business. But you know what? To care about people generally doesn't cost any money. And to truly um, empathize with, with your team members and to provide a culture of family. Everyone will say their company's a family, but we all know that, 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 fam that all families are different. The question is, what kind of family? What kind of family do you want to be a part of? And then for me, I want to be a family where people put others first. And if you think about putting others first, you will be wildly successful. And I, I honestly, I think that's what we've done for years and what we continue to do. Our people are the most important, and especially even in our in our pure clean. Frank and I, we are not successful at pure clean without the success of our franchisees. So we, that's all we do at pure clean. We are relentless about focusing on how to find ways for them to be more successful. That ties in so well to what you said at the beginning um, in the M&A space about when you go in to buy, that money is further down the list. It's the same when people go to find a company to work for and they're interviewing. They're also interviewing you as the company and money might be further down the list. Culture might be up there. Okay, so I want to carry on with this kind of people-centric mindset and have you talk about Signal Cares and what that is and how that got founded and what you've been doing with it and what that means for the, kind of the industry as a whole. Well, back to what attracted me to Frank Torrey being my partner is his philanthropy. And we, I've always had that same feeling. But at Signal, it's like, OK, people don't really know who we are and we're not doing this for self-promotion. And in fact, we were politely criticized by an insurance executive just six months ago in his office when he said, you know, I think you guys could do a little more for charity because we weren't publicizing mm -hmm. everything we're doing because we were doing it and not trying to get credit for it. Mm -hmm. And he said, honestly. People are aware of your success, Mark and Frank, and we think, my personal opinion is that you should actually maybe be a little more uh, self-promoting about that. So we yeah. have decided to do that. We've added the Signal Cares promotion. Last night, for example, we had the founder <clears throat> of Tunnel to Towers Foundation here in New York City, Frank Silva. We had Frank here, and Frank and I handed him and the Tunnels to Tower Foundation a check for $100,000 as part of the Signal Cares program. That's just one example. Um we literally try to do every event that we're going to sponsor. We will find a charitable organization, whether it be a children's hospital, 
Boys Hope, Girls Hope, Junior Achievement, whatever it might be, and tie it to that uh, to help celebrate our success. That is part of our culture. The good news is, even though we weren't promoting it outside of our company, our people inside of our company have known about Signal Cares for a long time, and it's a big part of our of our company. We do the exact same thing at PureClean. Our PureClean Cares, we literally have toy drives where you know around the holidays, where we will between all of our offices just create a tremendous amount of of uh, charitable giving for those disadvantaged families uh, all across the U.S. and Canada. So it's just something that it's part of the culture. And it's not a check the box. Oh, let's say that we care. No, this is just part of the giving of what we do. And um, and the good news is when people are part of our culture and they see that we're doing that, uh, it makes everybody feel good. And that's just another uh, part of, of building a world class organization. Yes. Philly, you have another one? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I get, so one of the things that uh, that always just struck me, I, I remember uh, the day that you purchased our company, you and Jeff came in and did the announcement. And I just think that it, it goes to the, the heart of who you were as a manager, as a manager, it's deeper than that. Your management strategy was, our job is to provide opportunities and remove obstacles. And so I think that, that yeah, I remember that from a long time ago. Um, I, I think that that goes into how you operate your businesses. But, you know, if you could speak to that just for a moment, that your job is to provide opportunities and remove obstacles. And if you do that, then you're successful. Uh, maybe a, a, a story or two about how that was manifest, but um, also where that came from, because there's some humility in that as well that says it's about you, not me. Uh I got to be honest with you. I learned that from Jeff Johnson. Uh, Jeff was my boss uh, my first year out of college, and he was only one year older. But he, uh, he, we worked for Sigma Phi Epsilon National Headquarters Fraternity, and we were part of a leadership development program. I went through that program at age 22. Jeff was the facilitator. And that's when I, he said his job was to remove obstacles in order for me to be successful. Hmm. And that's exactly what he did. And then I was promoted the next year to be his peer. So then we were able to work together for the next couple of years, helping remove obstacles for those young men that were working underneath us. And it worked. And so I learned it from Jeff Johnson. And it's just been, been a part of me since I've been 22 years old and I wouldn't operate a business any other way. You, you, you have to empower the people. It also goes back to not ever being a micromanager. One of my favorite quotes is Steve Jobs. You know, when he said, why would you hire talent and then tell them what to do? <laughs> you know, hire talent and then find out together what they think maybe the best course of action is, and then remove the obstacles, give them the resources. And if they fail, this is a big part of our combined success was this philosophy around failure. Promote risk-taking. Now, calculated risk-taking, not crazy, but risk-taking will lead to some mistakes and it will lead to some failures and it will lead to some successes. But every one of those quote, failures is just a learning moment of what didn't work, okay? It's not really a failure. I call it failing forward because at least it was advancing your brain and your heart and your mind and the team of, of okay, that didn't work. Well, let's try this. That didn't work. Let's try this. And you'll hear people say that, but I got to tell you, we're the. I probably made more mistakes than anybody in this industry, but I'm the guy that was never not doing something. I'm always like, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. And so you may know about some of the things that worked, but believe me, it's a small percentage of the initiatives and ideas and things that I've initiated over the years, the majority of them did not work, <laughs> but yeah. they helped me realize what was going to work. 
Yeah. So I got just one one follow uh, final question. Uh, so one of the things I, I consider you to be a pioneer in the industry, even not pioneer, maybe maybe a uh, uh, somebody who's driving and seeking to what's going on in the future. So driving, um, I, I can't put a word to that. So, but no less. Visionary, uh, as you, it, yeah, yeah. So as you look forward, what do you see the industry in five to 10 years? What, mm-hmm. what, what kind of changes? What, what does this look like uh, down the road? Well, what's interesting is I'm going to take a little bit of a snap back and then answer as I look forward. Okay. Had you asked me that question five years ago, I would not have been able to predict the amount of consolidation that started five years ago uh, that literally was just sweeping the industry up until this recent kind of downturn in the economy with interest rates. If so, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would not have said Surpro sells to Blackstone and BMS cat sells to private equity and Belfort sells to private equity, you know, and I, and you just go down the list and interstate sells to, you know, first service court. I just would like, are you kidding me? Um, And so I'm not sure how good my answer is going to be, but I can tell you that, that, Randy Fenton, I want to bring him up again. Randy Fenton was the first one to come up with this idea of consolidation. So it didn't start five years ago. It started literally with Randy in 1997 uh, when when he had the vision to partner with Masco and and to start buying companies. Uh, And I learned it from, then Jeff and I did it at Rocky Mountain Cap, but undercapitalized, we didn't have a financial partner. So we grew Rocky Mountain Cap, total bootstrapping acquisitions. Um, And, but once we started Belfort, you know, the instar was a consolidation that didn't really work, right? And so then after that, you didn't see much. And so uh, this consolidation, though, really is obviously what's going to be a huge part of the next five years, because some of those deals are working and some of those deals are not. Right. And so that, you know, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's just business. And so how that shakes out is that this, the extreme fragmentation of our industry still exists. There are thousands of restoration companies, as you well know, and you serve many of them in your great uh, consulting business. And Michelle, you're you're a big part of, of being a conduit of sharing you know, information and communication to the industry, is that I believe the consolidation is going to continue. I don't think you might see it at, at some of the big, big, big level, but those companies that did sell to private equity, part of their model is to continue to grow and buy companies through being accretive so even with the downturn in the economy look what's going on in florida and mm-hmm. look our industry is still it's a safe haven if anything else if the economy is going to be in a recession and that sort of thing that will attract even more uh, money into our industry because we are recession hardy i never say recession proof <laughs> but we are but we are recession hardy as an industry and so i think you're going to see more consolidation um I also see, you know, margin pressure continues to be an issue. And um, the, the growth of the consultants has really shocked me. We had consultants 25 years ago. We did. Um, but usually the adjusters were adjusting the claims. And then on the rare occasion, the consultant would come in. Now, wow. Uh, I don't know what you're seeing, Phil, but, but I can tell you. And because I'm in the residential business and the commercial and industrial business through, you know, all the companies we have, is that the consultants have had an incredible growth. And it's almost as if, and again, nothing against the adjusters, but it's almost as if the consultants are actually adjusting the claims and the adjusters are really kind of becoming more and more desk adjusters and, and uh, you know, moving the paper over here and just advancing the claim. So I don't know that that's going to continue because I do talk to carriers that say that the consultant bills are really starting to, you know, add up and all that sort of thing. And I think technology will continue 
to, to advance the industry as it relates to those adjusters maybe playing less and less of a role, okay? But maybe even the consultants also with technology playing less of, less of a role. Uh, so I see continued consolidation. I see the adjusters still having an important role, but, but continuing to diminish. And the consultants, that's the really one that I'm, I, I never would have predicted that either. I'm still kind of in shock about the growth of the consultants because it's really driven by distrust. And I think with technology, technology can actually create more trust because it can be difficult, you know, for the for for people to cheat, and that the, I just want to bring up cheating for a minute because it's something that that exists in our industry, and and I just think it just drives me crazy because there's no room for it, there's no need for it. We have not quite software margins in our industry, but we still have very healthy margins and margins that you, if you just do the right thing, you can provide for your family and and sleep well, uh, and not have to look in your rearview mirror. Um, but it's the people that do get caught cheating or that are cheating that will create more of that distrust with the industry that brings more consultants into it. So people are going to do what they're going to do. It's human nature. But I think that that policing, any self-policing with TPAs is always great uh, in certain companies. But it would certainly be great for the industry if there'd be a, even a better way for us to, to self-regulate and to and from an ethics standpoint and to having more people doing it the right way. Okay, so I love all that. And I kind of want to draw on a little bit of that to end on a positive and high note. Mark, every time I've seen you and probably anytime anybody's seen you, you are upbeat and energetic and positive and resilient, all of these things. You've talked about your mistakes that you've worked through and continued to grow and gone different directions in your career as things have changed. What advice would you give younger entrepreneurs or people coming into the restoration industry or owners, whatever, whoever that may be, whoever's listening on being resilient, being positive, living in an industry that is ever changing and never know what's going to happen next, but you just keep pushing forward. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Michelle. Each one of us, every one of us gets to decide every day when we wake up and we look in the mirror, what our attitude is going to be that day. No one's going to tell you what your attitude is going to be. No one's going to tell you how you're going to view things. And I learned this at a very young age that I get to choose and I choose positivity and mm -hmm. I choose optimism. And I, look, I used to be accused. I still am sometimes of, of having rose colored glasses and, and wow, why are you always in such a good mood? Mm -hmm. I've got problems. I've got plenty of problems. We all have, I have issues. I'm dealing with them now. Okay. But it, I've learned how to compartmentalize. And if you can have these issues going on, as we all do, but you don't let them permeate into the good things in your life, which is the majority of things, if you can learn to compartmentalize and say, okay, this issue exists, I'm not going to ignore it, but I'm going to put it over here in this box. And when I'm ready to come over and address it, I'm going to address it and I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to fix it. But in the meantime, I'm not going to let it permeate into all these other wonderful things in my life that are great. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people do. But I will tell you that positivity and high energy uh, and optimism have probably been some of my, uh, the biggest reasons, I guess, for my success, because people want to be around people that are positive and that they believe in. And, uh, but you also have to deliver. And so, um, but from that standpoint, we all get to decide how we're going to look at any situation and, and that the positivity is a daily decision. And it's one that I choose every single day to put a smile on my face, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, there's also a lot of hard work. I'll use the analogy of, of the swan on the water. When you're looking at a lake and you see that swan on the water and it's just so serene and it's so beautiful. But do you know what's going on underneath? If you took that camera underneath that water, that swan is paddling like hell underneath there. <laughs> but, you know, and so I am positive and I always am.
but believe me, I'm paddling like hell underneath that water. <laughs> okay, to to make things work and to and to turn that positivity into positive results for others, uh, and that's the advice that I would give anybody. Well, positivity breeds positivity. So I think it, it, people want to be attracted to that, and you start surrounding yourself with positive people. Well, Absolutely. Mark. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations on the 50th anniversary of Signal and all that you've done. Look forward to seeing you at some industry events and places in 2023. And Phil, anything else you want to say before we wrap oh, it? That's that's everything. Yes, what a, what a great interview. Before this turns into Joe Rogan, we'll have to cut it off. <laughs> well, I'm just happy to say part of me giving back. I'm the newest member of the RIA board and I've got my first yes. board meeting next week and I'm going to be at the IICRC headquarters for my first time. And and so it's, if, if anyone has any ideas of what they'd like to see in the industry, they can contact me directly because I'm here to represent the entire industry on the RA board. I love it. Fantastic. Perfect. Thank you very Thanks, much. Mark. Okay. Thank you. Take care.